You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Well, with all the division in America today, it's comforting to know that at least we can all agree on social justice. One pastor recently joked. Uh, the moment we were... we announced and said that we were going to spend any amount of time on these issues, some of you perhaps rolled your eyes, while others of you thought it's about time. Some of you were sitting, are sitting here tonight suspiciously, wondering, oh great, is this guy woke? While others of you are sitting here expectantly wondering tonight, please let this guy be woke. Well, if you are uh, joining us this evening for the first time, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we typically will just preach through books of the Bible as we are right now in the book of Acts. Tonight, we're going to spend, start first, the first week of three in thinking about issues such as race and justice and the role of the church. Now, I've told you guys several times over the past few months how thankful to God I am for the just remarkable unity that we are enjoying together as a church together in the unifying and reconciling blood of Christ. Uh, we haven't had an exodus of people over the past year, even rumblings of it, no rumblings of church splits over the horizon. Not, not even like the low-level social media division amongst ourselves. That is almost just a given these days. This is a work of the Spirit of God amongst us, and I'm like 100% confident in that. So why in the world would we choose now to open this can of worms? Why inject content into the life of our church that could introduce even just the potential hint of disunity? We're doing so well, so why mess it all up potentially? Well, there's probably other reasons, but mostly now for just two reasons. The first is this, is that there are lots of topics these days that would be potentially divisive, but they are necessary for us to have these conversations. If we both want to preach the whole counsel of God, and if we want to live our lives before the face of God, it would be much easier, for instance, to never talk about issues of sexuality. Like live and let live. Your business is your business. We don't want to offend anyone or make it potentially difficult for anyone to be here with us. It's not like sexuality is on every page of the Bible. Actually, very few of those pages. And Christianity is much, much more than our sexuality. And all of that is true. And yet, it's necessary for us to have these conversations amongst ourselves as what it means to live for Christ with all of our lives, including our sexuality. Fidelity to Christ and his word for all of life is way more important than not potentially rocking the boat. Sexuality is a moral issue. Abortion is a moral issue. Racism is a moral issue. The Bible has much to say about humanity and about justice. And so a clear understanding of what God desires for us, for the world, our role in that as a church is not only important, but it is necessary for us to have this conversation. Second though, these conversations They've been bubbling under the surface for the past many years, decades. For many people and cultures, these conversations haven't been under the surface, but they have been a lived reality, not for years or decades, but for centuries. But now, now, 
certainly in the last 12 months, these conversations and issues and difficulties and problems and conflicts are not merely under the surface, but they are now everywhere. A year ago, you had maybe never heard of words or phrases like critical race theory or intersectionality or privilege or fragility, but now most, if not many, of you have actually, you've not only not just heard of these, you actually have pretty formed opinions on many of these things. Your social media and your news feeds are filled up with these topics and conversations. Perhaps your HR department is having these conversations with you in new work trainings. So as your pastors, we want to offer our voice and to actually do what you have asked us to do, and that is to pastor you through difficult situations, difficult waters, swirling waters. Perhaps I don't even know what to think about this thing. And so, with all humility, I'd like to ask of something for you tonight. I'd like for you to approach tonight, and in fact, the next three weeks, with humility, with receptivity, not because I have anything especially world-changing or novel to say. I've told you many times before, I don't think I've ever had an original thought in my life. I am just a curator of good quotes. But perhaps some of the things that you are confident, confident of, that you are certain and sure of in your convictions, perhaps be willing to be challenged in those things. Be self-suspicious. I don't mean that in the way that your HR manager might mean, but is it possible that you have been more shaped and formed by the world in these conversations than by God? And that might equally apply to you whether you are on the right or you are on the left. One Christian author points out that discouragingly, discouragingly, many, if not most Christians, talk and argue about these conflicts, these conversations, these issues, not a whole lot differently than our non-Christian neighbors. Maybe, maybe our content might be different than our neighbors, but our tone and our blood pressures often aren't. This is not what God desires of us as his blood-bought, spirit-indwelt people. Now, I guarantee you that I'm going to say something over the next three weeks that will probably, in some way, uh, ruffle all of your feathers or perhaps even offend you. Uh, That's not my goal or my aim, but just knowing across the spectrum of where we all are in this, I hope that we can all be moved more to the cross of Christ. So, first thing, remember that this is three weeks long. I might say something tonight that I will continue to build on next week and the next, so maybe uh, hold off on the emails tonight and tomorrow uh, in response to something that you think I'm saying, when next week we'll likely clear up what I'm actually saying. But then second, let's just assume the best in one another. Uh, This is absolutely a lost art in our culture today. That is, if someone says something that you disagree with across the spectrum in all of our, the right or the left of our culture tells you that if someone says something that is disagreeable to you, that person must be silenced and or is just completely backwards, perhaps even evil. So in three weeks, we might still disagree on some things, you and I our elders, and you. Especially some of the more 
minor implications. We might disagree on some of those things, but I'm convinced that's okay. Disagreement does not have to mean that, like, I think that you are necessarily just being carried along by the spirit of the age, or you might think that of me. Disagreement doesn't mean that I don't think that you, take, you don't take the Bible seriously, or you might think that of me. That doesn't have to be the case. Human beings can actually come to different conclusions, even biblical con- con- conclusions, with conviction, without one of us or one of these people who are disagreeing with one another, without one of them necessarily having to be ignorant or uneducated on the one hand, or perhaps nefarious or evil on the other. It's hard to believe, I know, but we humans can once again learn to just agree to disagree on some things, especially when we are all Christians, when we are members, especially members of the same church committed to each other's and the world's good. However, on some things, we Christians, we must agree on the outset that we must agree. There are some things that we cannot agree to disagree on. Things like the triune nature of God, things like the divinity of Jesus, things like the authority of the scriptures. But another umbrella category that we must be clear on, that we cannot agree to disagree on, if you are a Christian, is the first thing that we're going to think about tonight, and that is the image of God. We're going to ask tonight, what is the image of God? Next week, we're going to ask, what is justice? And then the final week, we'll ask, what is the church? How should all of this, how should all of this then practically play out in the life of the church? But the big idea for tonight, if I can give you tonight's sermon in just one sentence, it's this. All humans are created in the image of God, which demands equal dignity for all people and equal repentance from all people. The image of God demands dignity for all people and repentance from all people. So, two major headings for tonight. The first is that all humans bear God's image. And then secondly, related to repentance, all humans must be conformed to Christ's image. Now, one last housekeeping item before we really get going. I told you that I'm just a curator of good quotes. I have uh, read, watched, and listened to a whole lot over the past year, undoubtedly, some of you have consumed even more. There's still uh, like a stack of books that I'd like to read, and even more that have announced their release date coming out this summer, and I'm like, ah, why didn't that come out earlier this year? It would have been so helpful to what we might think about these three weeks. So, uh, first, I might speak to something showing that I have some gap in knowledge that you have a clearer understanding on. Uh, I couldn't read it all. Uh, But second, I'm always really diligent to attribute or at least make clear when I'm uh, quoting from or paraphrasing from somebody. That's going to be more difficult for me over the next three weeks because I might be saying that I, I might be saying something that I think is actually an original thought when it's just something, some tweet that I saw like 10 months ago that is buried deep into my subconscious. Uh, But then also it might just get really tedious if I just keep attributing folks all night long. So enough is enough. Let's go. Uh, First, All humans bear God's image. We heard Angela read from Genesis 1 that on the sixth day, God created humanity, the crown jewel of his creation. He created male and female, and in his his image, he created them. Four years ago, we preached through the book of Genesis. 
so let me reiterate a few things that we thought about with the image of God from Genesis 1. Throughout the centuries, many people have tried to define or grasp just what the image of God actually is and what it means. Some have understood that bearing God's image or being an image bearer means that humans share some characteristics and qualities of God, things that perhaps the animal kingdom does not, characteristics that they, the animals don't possess in the same way that humans do, like communication or deeply relationable, relational capabilities, the ability to reason and to do so with a conscience, or perhaps an eternal soul. Maybe there's something to all that. But here's where I think my illustration from four years ago still holds up. Uh, anyone know what the Argonauts are? Uh, yes, amen. This is not a rich or a theological um, like Hebrew word or anything like that. It is actually much, much dorkier. Uh, the Argonauts are the giant statues in the Fellowship of the Ring that mark the northern border of Gondor. Yeah. What? Here, here. Amen. <laughs> to Minas Tirith. Uh, what do you think, assuming that you have read the books or seen the movies, what do you, as a reader or viewer, or perhaps even more so, the characters in the story, think when you see these gigantic statues of the ancient kings of Gondor? What do the makers of the statues want people to think when they see them? Why would they spend so many years crafting and constructing these statues and then putting them in a specific place? You are entering the domain of the kings of Gondor. That's why they're there. Something powerful and creative made them. I always wanted the backstory to the statues. Like, who made them? When? How? Tolkien didn't even think to put that in the Cimmerillion when he did everything else. But this is what kings in the ancient Near East would actually do. Ramses II, a pharaoh of Egypt, had his image cut out of a giant rock at the mouth of the Kelb River in like modern-day Beirut, way up in Lebanon, a long way away from Egypt, but it marked the extent and the border of Ramses' kingdom. When you saw that, you knew that you were coming into Ramses' domain, but even more than just pointing out borders of the kingdom or pointing attention back to the king, the king, certainly in Egypt and also in other cultures, uh, is a himself, the king himself, is a living statue of the gods. The king, the pharaoh, represents these gods on earth, often being described as a son of God. Adam, likewise, being created in God's image includes all of this. Like the Argonauts or Ramses' image in Beirut, wherever humanity is, that marks the place of Yahweh's rule of God's rule. Seeing a human being should elicit in you the same kind of thing that seeing the giant statue of the Argonath do. Who made them? Who made the, these humans? What's behind something so remarkable as a human that could create something like that? How? Remarkable. But also, like Egyptian pharaohs represented their gods on earth, somewhat like living statues, being created in the image of God acts much in the same way. Adam and Eve were representative rulers in Eden. They were little kings and queens of God's kingdom. 
The high king, the high king of heaven and earth above all things, gave authority to his sub-king, to his middle manager, to name the animals, to have authority over his kingdom, to work and keep his place. And as long as this middle manager, this sub-king Adam, kept his loyalty to the high king and didn't try to break off and create a new kingdom, then all was good, all was well. But not just representative rulership, also sonship. Just as Ramses thought of himself, or Egypt thought as Ra- of Ramses as a son of God, we see in Genesis 4 that Seth is born in Adam's likeness and image, continuing the likeness and image from God to Adam. Then Adam passes it along to Seth, and then ongoingly. Adam is truly God's first human son, but then Adam passes on that sonship to others as well. This is what makes the Judeo-Christian worldview so astounding. As we thought about in the book of Exodus or in a place like Psalm 8, whereas only kings in the ancient Near East acted as image of the gods, the God of the Bible democratizes his image to all humanity. This means that every human is created in the image of God. There is something astounding in every encounter you have with another human being. From an infant to the elderly infirmed, God's creative power and authority are on full display. From a CEO to a bank teller to a restaurant server to a coffee barista to a refugee immigrant. I think we can grow numb to this. Just like we're, I don't know, we find out, we're not, we we're become not all that impressed that like salmon from the Pacific Ocean return to the exact same pool where they were spawned from. Like, that's astounding when we first hear it, but then when we do a little research and we read the science behind it, we're like, yeah, I get it. Magnetic location. Meh. Like, no, that's astounding. We should not be like dumbed down into like understanding the science behind it. It's incredible. We can see human beings in the same way and interact with them, argue with them, get annoyed by them and just think, humans, they're the worst. Humanity is terrible, and we are. The story doesn't take long. It's like the second page of the Bible. Genesis 3, we, mo- we ruin the whole thing. And yet... There is something remarkable about humanity. If you've ever seen movies like Castaway or Gravity, or if you think about that one of the harshest punishments that you can give to a human is that of solitary confinement. Seeing or encountering another human should actually be a powerful experience. There is something different about a human being that points to the indescribable glory of God that the far reaches of the galaxies or the intricacies of like cellular DNA, it just doesn't do in the same way that just seeing a human being does. So if this is true, then it is also true that every human being carries inherent dignity, demands inherent honor as being one of God's image bearers on earth. His representative ruler, this human is. This woman that you just saw walking down the street is a boundary marker of God's reign on earth. Now, of course, many 
people don't recognize that of themselves, certainly of others, but every man or every woman that you see on the street corner ought to be dignified. Dignified perhaps even just with eye contact or a smile. Everyone has a story, how they ended up where they are today, including you, how you ended up here today sitting in this pew. Well, I don't think that necessarily having a soul is what it means to be created in God's image. C.S. Lewis is right, that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. That's astounding. Your right understanding of the image of God will not allow for the dismissal of other human beings as insignificant or unimportant. Every man, every woman, every child, every unborn infant of any skin color is specially created by God and shares in his image the same as you do. This is why those in the antebellum or Jim Crow South attempted to appease their consciences by thinking of those from African descent as subhuman, as, sure, a, a higher form of the animal kingdom, but not as fellow image bearers. This is why some of the most powerful images from the civil rights movement came from black men who carried signs that simply said, I am a man. That is a powerful statement. If I am a man, then I have dignity, and I am worthy of honor. If I am a man, then I have the same rights as all men, because all men are created equal. Every race, every language, every native and indigenous tribe is worthy of honor and care because of each's unique and particular way that they culturally manifest the image of God. And so a right understanding of the image of God will not allow for any form of racism of any kind. It will not allow for the sin of partiality. Now, maybe some of you just twitched a little bit when I said the word race. Because race is actually a fairly new concept. It's not a biblical concept. Tim Keller points out, it's argued that before the 1400s, different European nations did not see themselves as all one race, but of different ethnic or national groupings. The English word race would refer to those of like the Germanic race or the French race. But when the African slave trade started, the idea that there was a white race as opposed to other non-white races, including black, was a way to justify slavery and to give it something it had never had in antiquity, a strict racial basis. That is, even in the, slave, the kind of slavery that we see described in the Bible, it is not a a slavery based on one's race. People of the same race enslaved others. And so the idea of whiteness was new. First, it was abstract, not really based on your place and culture as with ethnic identity. No longer were you primarily Irish or primarily German or Swedish. You were now primarily white. When the Irish and the Italians first began to enter the U.S. in major numbers in the mid and late 1800s, they were not seen as white. 
and part of the U.S., the dominant U.S. racial group, but they were eventually admitted. Second, because now there were only four or five races, it was easier to identify higher or lower races. It was a way to very quickly categorize the whole human race into a strict hierarchy. And so, many today will argue that the way to counter the wicked and corrupting influences of racism is to actually stop making such a big deal about race. Everything is so racially charged these days that the way forward is actually backward. And there's actually quite a bit of truth to that. Andy Nacelli rightly says that this is the most fundamental reason why diversity programs or diversity trainings actually don't work. They usually backfire in their attempt to foster mutual respect amongst ethnic groups. They focus major attention on what is comparatively minor. And virtually no attention is given to what is infinitely, gloriously major. That is, a, our all people, our common and unique standing amongst all creation as persons created in the image of God. And he's right. Sociologists are finding these days that Companies are finding the law of unintended consequences with the kinds of diversity trainings that are often being employed. By overemphasizing race, these trainings are actually creating new racists. When distinctions and differences are so emphasized, it becomes very difficult for anyone to see someone different than them as not the other, as not someone so entirely different than me, perhaps even my enemy. We must emphasize our shared humanity, the democratized image of God in all people. And yet, is it wise to completely ignore or de-emphasize any or all racial differences? Must we correct any mention of the phrase, Black Lives Matter? or Native Lives Matter, or Asian Lives Matter? Does the mere mention of that phrase minimize or denigrate who white people are? No. For one thing, we could add to Jesus to any of those phrases. And of course it makes sense. Black Lives Matter to Jesus. Native lives matter to Jesus, and by saying these kinds of things, we can both decouple those inherent truths away from movements or away from organizations, and also, especially for those who are white like me, just remind ourselves of what is just totally and inherently true, just plainly true, that of course, yes, black lives matter. Of course, yes, native lives matter because they matter to God. Now, it's absolutely true that the Bible emphasizes ethnicities or peoples, marking differences in language or geopolitics, while our modern constructs of race arbitrarily make distinctions or differences on things like skin color or hair type. We are but one race, universally sharing in the image of God, but we humans now, whether we like it or not, have made a complete mess of it. For centuries, we have emphasized or made racial distinctions. It is the bed that we have made for ourselves. Racial constructs 
may be just that, constructs. And, and be patient with me, we have another sermon coming next week, but I am convinced that it is either naive or perhaps irresponsible to now just pretend like there aren't actual and very real racial disparities that should not be addressed head on. Certainly not minimized or ignored. But now, another section of you in the room might have twitched when I just said, we humans have made a complete mess of it. It is the bed that we have made for ourselves. Shouldn't I have said, white people have made a complete mess of it? And again, let's assume the best in each other now, but no. Humanity's problems do not come from white power, do not come from white privilege, do not come from white supremacy. Because, now second, all humans are made in God's image, but all humans must be conformed to Christ's image. The image of God demands equal dignity of all people, and it demands equal repentance from all people. Now, in a conversation that just needs lots and lots of nuance, what actually does not need much nuance at all is to observe the exploitation that many white Europeans and their descendants, many white Americans especially, the racist exploitation that they have brought against people of color. This includes the stealing of native lands, the breaking of promises, the violent, murderous, and dare we say almost genocidal acts of violence against native peoples. This includes the early centuries of the transatlantic slave trade, an entire economy built on slavery. And then later centuries of uh, Jim Crow segregation, including intentional efforts for economic, for geographic, for educational separation. These kinds of separation happened at governmental level, levels, federal, state, and local, and at more organic societal levels, including the church. The track record of the white church in America over 400 years has been at its best indifferent or apathetic towards racism or just straight up complicit, wickedly and sinfully racist at its worst, oftentimes. And this includes then white, his, white America's history with people of Asian descent. That is also deplorable and condemnable and so it's an understandable conclusion to just assume that there is something wrong. There is something inherently wicked about whiteness that teaches people that it is okay to use, to exploit, to minimize the image of God of other people that have darker skin than you do. The paler, the better, the darker, the worse, some people are taught to think. Or that's just something that we think that is just inherently true when we observe the last several hundred years. But here's the thing about humans. Not only are we all created in God's image, following Adam, that is, that we carry inherent dignity, but also in following Adam, we also carry inherent sinful desires, inherent sinful motivations that then translate and manifest into sinful actions. We do not need to be taught how to sin or to be selfish. The 18th century French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau believed and taught the, the blank slate, the tabula rasa, that uh, humans are come out blank and then are just taught things. 
Things are added to them. Rousseau says, men are wicked. A sad and constant experience makes proof unnecessary, right? We, we can just look around the world and know that men are wicked. But, Rousseau says, this wickedness comes from society. There is no original perversity in the human heart, Rousseau says. Everything is taught to humans by society. And so from his teaching came the idea of the so-called noble savage. Europeans could expect to find people of nobility and of honor in societies that were untouched by things like capitalism, by modern industry, that of man-stealing and Western economic exploitation. And so this is exactly what one of Rousseau's students the painter Paul Gauguin expected to find when he left France for the island of Tahiti. Gauguin wrote that he expected to find when he got to Tahiti an idealized concept of uncivilized man who symbolizes the innate goodness of one not exposed to the corrupting influences of society. Gauguin expected when he got to Tahiti to find innate good humans. What do you think when he found, or what do you think he found when he got to the shores of Tahiti? Innate goodness? Wickedness. Sexual oppression and exploitation. Violence. Broken and abusive families. Disease. Corrupt political systems. Is that because Tahiti was like an especially sinful and wicked place? No. Because it was a human place. Just the same as London or Paris or Shanghai or New York City. Merely focusing on the wickedness of whiteness ignores not only all of the wickedness and sinful exploitation that we, so, we see so vividly described and condemned throughout the Bible from many non-white people. I mean, many of the, the Hittites, the, the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, perhaps even Israel herself and her wickedness. Perhaps most, certainly many of them, had never even heard of a white person. They just came out of the womb looking to exploit people. Inherently wicked. But it also ignores the exploitation, the slavery, the violence of Asian people against Asian people of African people against African people, of Native American people against other Native American people. Now, be careful here. This kind of reasoning can often be used, often by white folks, as kind of like a force field. When our black neighbors or even our black brothers and sisters in Christ bring up concerns of lived experience with economic or educational or judicial systems, they bring up their concerns, and perhaps a common response is, well, come on, what about black-on-black -black crime? Black people kill more black people than white people do, after all, don't they? So, I mean, such a response may be true. But it is perhaps and often a way for white folks to avoid ever having to look into the mirror. A way to never address areas of potential injustice, a way to avoid listening, a way to avoid empathy. More on that next week. But I don't bring up centuries of human wickedness across geographic or ethnic lines to somehow excuse past or present injustice on behalf of white Americans, but to say 
that the proposed solution is just so short-sighted. It's like lifting up your gaze to like just here, like seeing humanity's problems is like right here when you're just lifting it to whiteness. When the universal, the problem is universal and it needs a supernatural solution. If only people could be taught not to be so white, to divest of their self-centered whiteness, then we would finally arrive at some cross-ethnic or cross-racial harmony and peace on earth. This is just awful anthropology. Again, human history tells us this. You, you do not need more than like a sixth grade education with a sixth grade history book in front of you to just know that humans are awful to each other. We have been our entire history. But the Bible tells us this as well. Paul writes in Romans 3 that none is righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jeremiah writes that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. All humans. The writer of Ecclesiastes writes that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And that book is often, or is also right after that in chapter 7, thinking about the abuse of the powerful, the financial and economic exploitation that are put on the poor. This is not thinking about white Western capitalism. It's just something that is inherent in every culture, in every society, in every economy. Later, the hearts of the children of man in Ecclesiastes 9 are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. Every single one of us comes out of the womb thinking only about ourselves. We are sinful all the way down. This is the doctrine of total depravity, not that we are always as sinful as we could be. Thank God for his restraining mercy but that every bit of us is corrupted by sin and selfishness. And so, when we see a nauseating and revolting security video of a black man punching an Asian woman to the ground and then kicking and stomping her while she remains on the ground, our reaction must not be that he is white-adjacent, or he is under the influence of white supremacy, somehow absolving his moral culpability and removing moral agency from this individual human image bearer that is sinning against another human and against God. It's true that in many ways we are products of the cultures and societies in which we live, but as Christians we must affirm, yes, the equal dignity of all human beings, but we must also equally call all humans to repentance to love God, to love their neighbor through the cross of Christ that empowers such things, whether a, a white police officer, whether an elderly black woman or a Navajo businessman. While certainly those who are in positions of greater societal, societal power can inflict more societal damage because of their place of power, privilege and power is not what makes someone sinful or evil. Power can be used for good and for ill. And lack of privilege or power is not what makes someone righteous or virtuous. 
all of us are either in Adam in his sinful rebellion that leads to death or are in Christ in his perfectly loving God, the Father honoring obedience that brings his life to his people. To be identified with the second man of second creation in his love and obedience generated either a first time by our natural birth or generated a second time by a supernatural birth. All humans are created in the image of God, but as Clint read in the call to worship from Colossians 1, Jesus is the true image of God. There's something marred or smeared or blemished in us as God's image bearers. Jesus is the true and the clear image of God, the rightful representative ruler on behalf of the Father, the image of God that he has called all of us to now be conformed to, to be restored to as, as we were in our right original creative position. Jesus died in your place on the cross to restore you to the right image of selfless love, of delighted obedience. Through the centuries, many, most, all of us, to some degree or the other, have failed in clearly pointing to the right and the good reign of God in being his image bearers. So this call to repentance is a call for all humanity. A call to repentance is actually a call to even Christians to examine, to turn to God initially and then ongoingly, to know the love and grace of God and then be utterly transformed by his spirit. And so while we'll certainly have more to think about by way of practical application over the next two weeks, how should we understand that seeing all human beings as image bearers, how does that confront our love for others, confront our own self and sin? Keller wisely recommends this. Repent. Repent for the more deliberate ways you may have violated the image of God, the more deliberate ways you may have neglected neighbor love, neglected the new creation, the gospel of grace. But he says, keep in mind, keep in mind that we are called not only to repent of willful, deliberate sins, as David says in Psalm 19, but David also writes in Psalm 19, who can discern their own errors? He asks God to forgive me of my hidden faults. Now, this is not the kind of like confess all the ways that you might be a racist type exercise that you may have participated in over the past year. But David is crying out to the Lord, search me and know me, O God. This prayer is needed by every human. We are equally created in the image of God and equally in need of having our sinful hearts exposed and replaced with a new heart. We are often not even aware of the depth of our sin. We humans are ongoingly trying to categorize other humans as the other, as someone who is justified or who justifies me and considering them perhaps a little less worthy or deserving of my honor or my dignity. Sometimes this happens across racial lines. This is racism. This should be repented of. But other times it's not. Other times it's not clearly 
racial line. Sometimes we view someone as the other because they are perhaps from a different part of the country and carry different cultural sensibilities. Perhaps the other is someone of a different level of education, higher or lower than yours. Perhaps someone is the other by the amount of money they make or don't make. Sometimes we make these kinds of distinctions showing partiality to those in our own church, those who really take the Bible seriously like I do, or those who don't, people who are thinking clearly and are actually loving the world like I do, taking things really seriously. Those people who aren't taking things seriously should be treated differently because they don't love like I do. This is a different but similar kind of partiality that must be confronted and repented of. The depth of our sin certainly tempts us to disdain the people who understand and approach these conversations differently than you do. So when you find yourself getting angry in these kinds of conversations, especially with those in your church, not coming to like convictional disagreement, but real blood pressure raised anger. This is sin. And the way of Jesus is to love your enemies. Someone once said, it's almost impossible to pray for people that you hate. And it's equally almost impossible to hate people that you're praying for. Who are you praying for that you are tempted to disdain? Keep praying for your fellow church members. Keep praying for us, your pastors. This local body of Christ that more and more the love of God through Christ might be slowly but surely more and more each year a little bit more made known through us to our neighborhoods, to the world. Love each other and move toward each other, not necessarily to convert your friends and your co-workers to a different ideology, but to love and to lay yourself down, that the image of Christ in us might be attractive and compelling, a new created reality for all the other images of God out there, that the image of Christ, as it is being clearly proclaimed to the world, might call sinners to himself. All right, we've got a lot to do. Thanks for hanging in there with me tonight. We went a little bit longer than we normally do. That probably will be the case next week too. Kids, you're doing awesome. Uh, But hang in there. Hang in there. You You might have some feathers ruffled. Perhaps those will be smoothed out next week. Perhaps they aren't or they won't be, and that's okay. Uh, let's keep talking about these things together. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that having these conversations might make us more into the image of Christ, might cause us to love humanity more because you have loved humanity, that you have in your wisdom thought to create every human that lives on this planet. Help us to love as you do. Help us to lay our lives down, our own desires down. Help us to um, become more and more selfless because of the selfless love of Christ who came to us to beckon us to the love of God and who died in our place 
on the cross that we might find forgiveness and that we might become sons and daughters of God. God, we pray that these conversations over these next few weeks and months might not create disunity. Protect us, O God. Protect us from disunity. Give us charitable and uh, patient hearts and mouths. Cause us to be slow to speak, quick to listen. Cause these conversations to create more supernatural unity amongst us that we might love each other and love our neighbor more and more. For the glory of Christ, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.